We are going to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through the end of the chapter. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us as apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, and a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to read and understand your word and in it know you, Father. Help us to not be arrogant, but to think rightly of ourselves and to think rightly of our Lord Christ. Help us to know him more truly as he is through the preaching of the word today. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. On, on the first page of, uh, of his excellent book, simply titled Humility, Andrew Murray says, Humility, the place of entire dependence on God, is from the very nature of things the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature and the root of every virtue. I believe that statement to be correct from every angle. At the heart of all that God requires of us, including Faith itself, faith in Jesus Christ through which He saves us to the uttermost is His call to trust Him and not to trust ourselves and to give credit for every good thing to Him and not to ourselves. There is no boasting in us that fits in that paradigm anywhere. If the if the virtue called humility is the root of all other virtues, I believe it's equally true that the sin called arrogance is at the root of all other sins. And it is the sin of arrogance that Paul has in his crosshairs in this very powerful passage. 
The Greek word that's translated arrogance here shows up a total of seven times in Paul's letters. Six of those seven are in his letters to the Corinthians, and three of those seven are in this passage. This passage is about the problem of arrogance. The word that's translated arrogance, literally, it means puffed up. And the specific manifestation of the puffing up that Paul is confronting here is, he says, arrogance, quote, in behalf of one against another. I believe he's referring yet again to the factions, the divisions that had arisen among the saints at Corinth. One was saying, I am of Paul. Another, I am of Apollos. Another, I am of Peter. Some were saying, I am of Christ. As if that were not true of every believer. Here in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul tells us that, that his repeated use of these men's names, Paul, Apollos, and Peter, was figurative. In other words, he was avoiding adding fuel to the fire of the divisions among the Corinthians by inserting his name and the names of his co-workers in place of the names of the real instigators and ringleaders of these factions. It's no small point that Paul directly links the divisiveness that he has already forcefully rebuked with the sin of arrogance. Division does not happen when we are humble before God and before one another. Division happens when we are puffed up, when we are full of ourselves. Last week in the verses that immediately preceded these at the beginning of chapter 4, we, we took a somewhat painful look at Paul's forceful exhortation to us to stop judging motives that we can't even see in other people. The assumption that you and I are qualified and competent to draw conclusions about the invisible things in the hearts of others is an assumption that is grounded in arrogance in a falsely inflated view of our own abilities. I should, I should mention that there was one very influential preacher in this, in this era who went down in flames and a, and a big part of what caused his undoing was this assertion that he made that he could see into the hearts of other people. He could tell them what was going on when even they didn't know it. The other-centered navel-gazing that the Corinthians were practicing toward one another was fanning the flames of serious division within the Corinthian church. Now, in the remainder of chapter 4, Paul goes from that symptom to the cause. (laughs) And the cause is plain old ugly arrogance. Paul is being very careful to avoid contributing in any way to their prideful games. He tells them that the reason for his great caution is, quote, that in you, in us, you might learn not to exceed what is written. That no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. That in us you might learn not to exceed what is written. The first of four parts to God's divine directive against arrogance in this passage is don't exceed what is written. Throughout his epistles, when Paul refers to that which is written, he's talking about the Old Testament. By the time the Apostle Paul came onto the scene, God had already had 
plenty to say to his people to correct uh, every tendency toward arrogance. And arrogance was prolific among the Israelites and Judahites. God has spoken. And if we're actually listening to what he has said (laughs) to us clearly and emphatically in both Testaments, we'll know that there is no room at all for arrogance in the hearts of those who are the children of God. We could go to countless passages to develop all that the Old Testament says about pride and humility. It's a lot. (laughs) It comes up, it comes up in Proverbs, it comes up in the Psalms, it comes up in the narrative literature. It's all over the place in the Old Testament. God is constantly rebuking His people for pride, for arrogance. But as Thomas Schreiner points out in his excellent commentary on 1 Corinthians, we don't really have to look any further than the four Old Testament citations that Paul's already given to us in 1 Corinthians in order to make, in order to get the point that he's making here. I'm going to read each of those passages in the first three chapters with just enough of the surrounding context to help relay the point that Paul is making with each of these Old Testament citations. Every time as I read, every time that you hear the words, it is written, the next thing that you'll hear is from the Old Testament. The first citation is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. And by the way, as I read, think about the connection between each of these Old Testament declarations and the problem of arrogance. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 19. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. The next is chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. But by His doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The next is chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. The citation's in verse 9, but let me give you the context. He says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit teaches all things, even the deep things of God. And the fourth citation is chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the, the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. Only an arrogant Christian could miss what those four Old Testament citations are saying to arrogant Christians. 
God will destroy the wisdom of those who consider themselves to be wise. If you are truly wise, the wisdom that you do possess is bound up in your union with Christ. It didn't come from you. 1 Corinthians 1.30 Christ is your only righteousness in the eyes of God. Christ is your holiness in the eyes of God. Christ is your redemption. And it is by God's doing alone that you are in Christ. All that God calls wisdom, He says, is completely foreign to the eyes and ears and hearts of human beings unless He makes it known to them by the work of His Spirit through His Word. Men do not arrive at wisdom on their own. God knows the reasonings of those who think themselves wise. He knows that those reasonings are actually useless. Men may be fooled by fake wisdom, but God certainly is not. The four Old Testament citations in those first three chapters of 1 Corinthians are just the tip of the iceberg (laughs) of all that God declares in the Old Testament on this matter concerning the arrogance and foolishness of those who declare themselves to be wise apart from God. But even those four citations by themselves make it crystal clear that there is There is no place for arrogance in the hearts of God's people. The first thing that you and I must do if we want to walk humbly before God is to know His Word in both Testaments and to let His Word tell us what's true of us. Certainly what's true of God, but also what's true of us. The simple reality, beloved, is that if we never allow ourselves to go beyond God's assessment of us, if we never exceed what is written, we will not become arrogant. Okay, so the first part of God's prescription to put an end to our arrogance is do not exceed what is written. The second part is in verse 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? The second part of God's God's divine directive against our arrogance is know that nothing that you have came from you. Nothing that matters. A right answer to the question, what do you have that you did not receive, will dispel arrogance from our hearts as long as we count that right answer to be true. God has been saying this to His people as long as His people have existed. The book of Deuteronomy was written, was delivered by God through Moses to the generation of Israelites who had grown up in the wilderness of Sinai after Israel had been delivered by God from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. During those 40 years after that great deliverance, Yahweh alone had miraculously provided manna from heaven to feed every Israelite just enough to meet every person's need every day. For 40 years, Yahweh alone had protected those wandering Israelites from the powerful enemies that surrounded them on all sides. Now they had finally arrived at the threshold. They were on the on the east side of the Jordan River, ready to cross over when Deuteronomy was was written. 
They had arrived at the threshold of the land that God had promised to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a land full of abundance, flowing with milk and honey. Now listen to what God says to them. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, God set before them a very stern warning because He knew exactly what was going to happen when they finally came into this place of great abundance. He said to them, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless Yahweh your God for the good land which He has given you. Beware that you do not forget Yahweh your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinance, His ordinances and His statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget Yahweh your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness, He fed you manna which your fathers did not know that He might humble you and that He might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, Listen, otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth that He may confirm His covenant which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. Brothers and sisters, that warning is as powerfully relevant for you and me right now as it was for Israel the day that God first declared this to them through Moses. Arrogance cannot take root in our hearts if we continually and prayerfully remember that nothing we have that is worthy of being called well-being came to us from our own hands. Not one thing. All of it is from God. Anything that came from our hands does not constitute well-being. It's that simple. James 1.17 says, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. What do you and I have that we did not receive? God's answer is nothing. We who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ have received from His hand every single thing that will endure, every single thing that constitutes real well-being, and all that we have been given by Him is bound up in our union with Christ. The union that He brought about, 1 Corinthians 1.30. That's the only reason that we possess, you and I possess the unfathomable riches of Christ. Christ who is our life. So the only one we have to boast in is God who has given us every good thing when we deserved no good thing. So the first part of God's divine directive against arrogance is do not exceed what is written. The second is know that you have nothing worth having that came from you. <laughs> it all came from God. 
The third part of his prescription to drive away our arrogance is to imitate those who suffer for following Christ. We're not real keen on the idea of patterning our life after people who suffer. But that's exactly what Paul exhorts the Corinthians to do. And that's what God exhorts us to do. In the first message of this series, we talked about how much the church in Dallas, Texas today has in common with the church in first century Corinth. Corinth was in the catbird seat when it came to the things that, that the world values. Because Corinth was so strategically located for the movement of goods throughout the Roman Empire, every Roman emperor since Julius Caesar had flooded that city and the surrounding region with money and skilled workers and resources and military protection. So there was no shortage in Corinth of prosperity, security, influence, comfort, predictability for all except the poorest in Corinth. Many of the Christians in Corinth had come to count on that state of affairs just as have many of the Christians in Dallas. And believe me, guys, I'm talking to myself here as I'm sharing these things with you. But God has never intended for His people to find our well-being in any of those earthly treasures. In verse 16, Paul says, Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of Me. He sets His own life before them as an example that they should seek to follow. Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of Me. What's the therefore, therefore? Well, if you go back to verse 8 and you read through to verse 16, you'll find that, that what Paul is exhorting the Christians in Corinth to imitate is not attractive at all if your priorities are worldly priorities. In fact, it's anything but attractive. In verse 8, he says, <laughs> this is great, he says, you, you Corinthian saints, you're already filled. You've become already become rich. You've become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings that we might also reign with you. The Corinthian saints were enjoying a life filled with worldly comforts. They were living like kings. By the way, God actually has promised us as His children that we will one day reign together with Christ. But not now. Not now. In verses 9-16, through 16, Paul sets before them a radically different way of life as an example of what their lives should look like. And that example is Paul's own life. The two most important things to note about that example are first, that Paul's life was marked by great suffering for the sake of Christ. And secondly, he suffered because he, Paul, was imitating Christ. What he's saying is imitate me as, follow me as I follow Christ. Many of the preachers that fill churches to overflowing these days talk a whole lot about the abundant Blessings that God puts in the hands of Christians right now if they're living the Christian life correctly. Prosperity and good health, influence, and of course supernatural protection from anything that would threaten any of those other blessings. Those are all part of our eternal inheritance in Christ. But God has very intentionally not promised those things to us 
now. What He has promised to us is that if we walk as He has called us to walk, we will participate in the suffering and dying of Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Now, if it makes you weary to keep hearing that at CBC, <laughs> you need to know that we keep, we keep saying it because God keeps saying it over and over and over in both testaments of His Word. It is one of the most very most prominent and often repeated and mission-critical truths in the whole Bible from the fall of Adam until the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. Any man who claims to be preaching God's Word but who does not often speak, who does not often speak of every believer's necessary and ongoing participation in the sufferings of Christ is actually preaching something other than God's Word. Or is being so selective with God's Word that He's not worth much. Because God calls us to know and to heed the entire counsel of His Word. Romans 8.17 says that if we are children of God, we are heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That means that, that the time, the day is coming when we will inherit all that belongs to the Son of God. But then it says, if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. The suffering comes now. The glory comes later. How much later? Well, Jesus said the servant is not greater than the Master, right? If our Master had to die before He, was, before he re returned to His rightful glory, you and I can be sure that our participation in His glory will not come until we've taken our last breath in these mortal bodies. That, by the way, is why in that same chapter, Romans 8, Paul goes on to, to liken the entirety of the Christian life to labor pains. That's what he's saying here to the Corinthians. He's telling them that their lives should look like His life precisely because His life looked like Christ's earthly life. And Paul's life was hard at a level that most people would avoid copying at all costs. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's the approach that many Christians take. Don't, co don't copy that. If you want to know how hard Paul's life was because he was following Christ, the two clearest passages about that are found here and in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I encourage you to read 2 Corinthians 11 from that perspective. Look at what Paul's life is like. But for this morning, we'll stay right here. He has plenty to say here. Let me read 1 Corinthians 4 verses 9 to 13 again. Listen. He says, for I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all. What he's saying is, like the faithful prophets in the Old Testament and like Jesus Himself who came before us, God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. The next verse, verse 10, contains what we call sarcasm. Paul says, we are fools for Christ, but you, you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. 
I know Paul's being sarcastic because his whole point here is, is that his description of the Corinthians' experience of the Christian life is not how the Christian life works. If you are convinced that you will be regarded as wise and strong and distinguished because you're following Christ, guess what? That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You're living in a fantasy of your own construction. Here's how following Christ actually plays out. We are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak. We are without honor. Paul's not finished yet with this job description for Christians. He goes on in verse 11. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things even until now. Guys, if you went for a a job interview and that was handed to you as the job description for the available job, how many of you would say, sign me up? If you've never heard the phrase, the scum of the earth, or if you've ever heard the phrase, the scum of the earth, now you know where it came from. It's from this passage. It is part of the lifestyle of every child of God. It's what we are supposed to experience because we follow in the footsteps of our Master. Walking well as a follower of Christ means being seen by this world as the most foolish and weak and despised group of people on earth when we are walking well. Back in chapter 1 of this letter, Paul said, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised He has chosen, the things that are not, that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God The life that Paul commands us to imitate is the life of those who are seen by this world as foolish, weak, base, despised, as those who are not rather than as those who are. That's our job description. It's hard to see how you can fit into that the obsession in our generation with holding fast to the bubble of cultural acceptability that Christians have enjoyed in this country for a long time. God never promised us cultural acceptability. He never said to us that we have rights that our government and our culture are supposed to afford to us. I've said this many times, I'll say it again. Your only right and my only right in the eyes of God is to go to hell. That's what we've earned by our sin. That's what God says. So why are we clinging to things that don't belong to us based on what God has to say? Why aren't we instead clinging to what God has promised? Because it's magnificent. Persecution, tribulation, distress, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, death, life. Angels, demons, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, 
No created thing, not any created thing will ever separate you from the eternal love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what God has promised to you and me and that's all that we need. It is well with our souls. It is well with our souls. All the time. Where does a puffed up view of self fit in this paradigm? Absolutely nowhere. Verses 14 and 15 of this chapter are very important for understanding the heart of Paul as he issues this painful and forceful correction to the Corinthian saints and to you and me. Listen to what he says. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He desires their good. And he says, for if if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Paul's not demonizing these wayward Corinthians, even the most arrogant ones. There is a powerful God-sourced love behind every single word that Paul speaks to the church in all of his letters. He loves the people of God with the tenderness that a godly father has for his children because they are his children in the faith. Many of of those to whom he wrote. A godly counselor never rebukes a brother or sister in Christ with the intention of leaving him wallowing in shame and self-loathing. Christ died to redeem us from our well-deserved shame. He died to make us sons and daughters of the Most High God. A godly counselor is always careful to make sure that the one he rebukes is very aware of his love and especially of God's love. It's not something that ever goes without saying. It's against the backdrop of Paul's own life and of his declaration of his godly love for all the saints that he then says in verse 16, therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. And then he says, verse 17, for this reason I've sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. It's important to remember as we go through Paul's letters to different churches that he keeps saying, what I'm writing to you is what I write to all the churches. There are people who always, there's so many people who want to contextualize certain things in Paul's letters to such a level that they can't apply to anybody except that original tiny audience to whom they were written that died long ago. Paul's saying, nope, this is what I say to all the churches. This applies to you and me. Timothy, whom he was sending, was a beloved follower of Paul as Paul followed Christ. Timothy was an example of exactly the kind of lifestyle that Paul was exhorting these Corinthians to embrace. All right, the first three parts to God's divine directive against our arrogance are these. First, do not exceed what is written. Second, know that nothing that you have worth having came from you. Third, imitate those who suffer for following Christ. And finally, the fourth piece of God's prescription to dispel our arrogance is in verses 18 to 20. And is it is to know that the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. 
In these final verses of uh, chapter 4, Paul declares his intention to come to Corinth again soon. He says, if the Lord wills. And as he makes that that, uh, declaration, he leaves the Corinthians with yet another corrective to their sin of arrogance. (laughs) Some of the Corinthian saints were so full of themselves that they didn't see themselves as accountable to anyone else, not even to Paul as Christ's own chosen apostle. Here are verses 18 to 21. Paul says, Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And listen, I shall find out not the words of those who were arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul told the Corinthians that when he came again to their local flock, it would not be the words of the arrogant to which he would call them to give account. They would give account for either bearing or not bearing the power of God in the world. Words without power, no matter how boastful those words may be, are still of no consequence. Paul is not saying at all that words can't be powerful. He said in no uncertain terms in chapter 1 that the word of the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What he's saying is that the puffed up, self-exalting words of prideful children of God have no power. They're all bark and no bite. The only legitimate power that will ever inhabit the words that come out of your mouth or my mouth during our mortal lives will be the miraculous, life-giving power of the Word of God when that is what we are speaking. Your opinion and my opinion is not worth a plug nickel. The only thing that ever comes from our mouths that bears any authority, any power in this world is when we are saying what God has said. If my words are about me, They're powerless. If they're about Christ and they're in keeping with what His Word declares, they are inhabited by the Holy Spirit with the miraculous power to redeem and to restore. As Hebrews 4.12 says, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of Joints of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Isn't that great? You remember the whole discussion at the beginning of chapter 4 about how we are not qualified to see into the hearts of other people? Who is? God. And how does He accomplish that on earth? How does He smoke out what's, what's in our hearts that He intends to smoke out? His Word. His Word. What lays us bare before God so that we are exposed and the light, the light dispels the darkness? The Word of God. And that's what we need to be. That's what we need to be proclaiming and speaking. We have to know it to proclaim it, beloved. I've said this before. I meet so many Christians these days, young Christians and some older ones, 
who act like the, the task of really knowing the Bible is just too cumbersome, that that can't be what the Christian life requires. Beloved, that is what the Christian life requires. I don't know the Bible nearly as well as some of you. But it is my, it is my day by day target and goal to know it as well as I possibly can in order that I may know God as intimately and personally as I possibly can. Because it is, we come to the Word of God to behold the Lord of the Word. To know Him. Beloved, don't be surprised when those who are perishing label you as arrogant because you confidently declare what God has declared to mankind. Don't be surprised when they call you a fool of the highest order. Don't be surprised when they despise you and malign you and even when they call you hate mongers. And don't let any of that shut you up. Let us boast of nothing in ourselves. Let us boast without pulling our punches of the beauty and glory and life-giving power of the Word of the cross of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Christ. Let us embrace a life of participation in the suffering and death of our Master, knowing that the end of it will be eternal participation in His glory, together with all of His redeemed, with Him walking right in our midst for all eternity. Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear Your gracious rebuke. It is gracious. And to embrace Your prescription for our arrogance that we may set aside every boast except in You alone. Bind our hearts together in godly humility and love. Teach us to give preference always to one another in honor and not to ourselves. Teach us to imitate those who humbly suffer for following Christ just as He humbly suffered in perfect submission to You, Father, to the point of death, even death on a cross. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name and for His glory. Amen.